0: <clears throat> In an episode uh, from the, the classic uh, TV series from the 1960s, The Andy Griffin Show. Y'all remember that? Yeah. Okay, I do. <laughs> yeah. Do you know it, Jen? The Andy Griffin Show? Okay, yeah. Uh, the Andy Griffin Show, uh, Andy Taylor. The sheriff of Mayberry is out of town. He's out of town. His deputy, you know the deputy, right? The deputy, Barney Fife, he's the guy who carries a gun and he's got a, a bullet in his pocket, right? <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> so. Barney Fife is in charge. Yeah, you know it's bad. Barney Fife is in charge, and he has deputized the local mechanic, Gomer Pyle. So you know this is going to go bad, okay? okay. The two deputies are walking down the street one evening when they notice that someone is robbing the town's bank. They quickly duck behind a car. They are afraid and don't know what to do. Finally, Gomer looks at Barney and says, Excitingly, and you know the way he's going to say, Shazam, right? That was his word Shazam, we need to call the police. <laughs> to, to which. In utter exasperation, Barney cries out, we are the police. (laughs) We could say the same thing about the church. We look around in this dark and troubled world, right? We look around in this dark and troubled world and we realize we're the ones. We're the ones who have the privilege, first the privilege, and the responsibility to do something. For the last two Sundays, we've worked through the Beatitudes, or the attitudes that ought to be. Okay? That's what they are. The attitudes that ought to be the beginning of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus went up on a hill in Galilee, somewhere near Capernaum, and he taught those who hiked up the hill after him. I imagine that there were thousands there. Thousands of people from all over the place, from all different kinds of backgrounds, with different kinds of struggles, hiked up this hill to hear about the kingdom of God. Specifically, how to enter into it and how to live in it. Jesus is up on a hill teaching about the kingdom, saying things that they had never heard before. And to set the tone for his sermon, Jesus zeroes in on matters of the heart. That's where he goes first. He goes To the heart. He goes right to the core where his focus is on a person's character. For a person's character motivates and guides their conduct, right? A person's character motivates and guides their conduct. And he finishes the Beatitudes with these words we saw them last week can you pop that up here we go this is how he finished in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 through 12 blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say All kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you well no one wants that kind of blessing right No one wants that kind of blessing, but because of Christ, because we identify with him, because we follow him, because we live in the way that he wants us to live, Jesus explained this will create, and Scott and I were just talking about that, this will create A negative reaction by those who live according to the pattern and the principles and the values of this world and let me say those of this world don't mind if we are doing good they don't mind that as long as here's the caveat as long as we stay hidden and silent. They don't mind us doing good as long as we stay hidden and silent when it comes to matters of the truth, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Don't make waves. Don't stand up, don't speak up, don't make a difference, and don't try to be a godly influence. Don't do it. And that's precisely where Jesus takes us next. So if you have your Bible or your iPhone, Turn to Matthew chapter five, and we will begin with verse 13, where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In this verse, on the heels of teaching about character, Jesus makes a reference to salt, it's a metaphor. A figure of speech that people can relate to. And I need to remind you that when we are interpreting the Bible, especially when dealing with metaphors like this, we first need to understand what is being said back then and there before we can understand and apply what is being said to us in the here and now. Make sense? So let's talk about salt for a moment and what it meant to the people that Jesus was talking to back then and there. Someone has claimed that salt has 14,000 uses. So we're going to go over them all, okay, no, 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 no. I don't know who said that, but whoever that was who said that, obviously had way too much time on their hands anyway out of my mercy towards you i'm only going to talk about a few of the uses and then i will get to the point i think that jesus was trying to make to his listeners okay in those days salt was a necessity for everyone. To the people who were up on the hill with Jesus, they did not have refrigerators and freezers and ice makers. And in a hot climate such as they were in, they needed some way to preserve their food such as fish and and meat, to keep it from decay and from spoiling. And so they would rub salt on the food or they would soak the food in in a salt solution, in a salt bath. That was a regular use for salt. It was used as a preservative in a time when fresh food was often unavailable. Okay? Have you ever heard the phrase, that person is worth their weight in salt? Have you ever heard that phrase? It's an old phrase, yeah. That person is worth their weight in salt. You ever heard that less? There is a claim that at some point in ancient Roman history, soldiers were sometimes paid in salt. It was used like we use money. It was accepted as pay, and it is said that our English word for salary, you know that word, our English word for salary can be traced back to the Latin word that means salt money. That's where it comes from, salt money. So salt was a valuable commodity, valuable enough to use as compensation to a Roman soldier. In those days, salt was also used as an antiseptic because it would kill germs. If a soldier was hurt in battle, if a farmer cut himself, if a child fell down and scraped a knee, salt would be applied to the wound to fight off Infection, And kind of in the same vein, and I did not know this, in Ezekiel chapter 16, there is a reference about rubbing salt on newborn babies. Even while the cord is still attached, rubbing salt on newborn babies using salt as a disinfectant salt also spoke of friendship, of friendship. According to ancient custom, a bond of friendship was established through the eating of salt. It was said that once you ate another man's salt, you were his friend for life. Now out of that idea grew the concept, and you'll see this throughout the Bible, The concept of a salt covenant. Have you heard that? A salt covenant. Before the days of a notary, when two men entered into an agreement and they would haggle over the terms, right? Then once the terms were settled, they would eat salt or or portions of food that was salted to establish their covenant, to establish their contract, a covenant or a contract that could not be broken. Now, just like today, salt is also used to flavor food, right? Just a pinch of salt makes food taste better. It enhances flavor. And for those of you who say, I'm not being very health conscious when it comes to salt, my response is, I'm just gonna be biblical. Because it was Job, Job who asked, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? That's what Job asked. Yes, thank you, Tim, yes. Can something, he was referring to eggs, egg whites, yes, absolutely. Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Well, no, no. But of course, my wife would counter and say, right? My wife would say, but Job didn't know Mrs. Dash in his days. And before I respond to her, the the little phrase, happy wife, happy life, just goes across my mind. And I zip it. That's as far as we go, right? So it was used as flavor. So with all this knowledge about salt and what I shared was not exhaustive, By any stretch of the means, remember, someone claimed there's 14,000 uses for salt. So with what I said, what was Jesus really saying to these people? What was he saying? I mean, they could have been thinking all sorts of things. Right? They could have been thinking all sorts of things. In my study, I read all kinds of answers to the question, what was Jesus saying? And most of the answers, and they were good answers, were associated with some specific use of salt generally suggesting that Jesus was talking about salt as being a preservative. And God's people through their character and through their conduct are to slow down the moral and the spiritual decay in this troubled world. I cannot argue that point. That is an absolute good point. But Jesus did not get that specific here. He did not say that. And I think, and I think maybe that's the point. Jesus said, you are the salt. He's talking to people. You are the salt of the earth. So who were these people that he was talking to? These people who hiked up the hill to listen to Jesus thought the kingdom of God was out of reach. They could not keep up with the legalistic system imposed upon them by these self-righteous religious leaders who were supposed to be representing God. These people were told they were worthless. They weren't important. They were useless. But up on the hill, when speaking about those in the kingdom, Jesus called them salt of all things. Something widely known by everybody for being important and valuable and useful in so many ways. And in effect, I think Jesus was saying this. You thought you were nothing. You thought you were nothing, but in the kingdom, you are everything to God. You're the salt. That's who you are. You're that important. You're that valuable. You're that useful. And because that's who you are, then be who you are, just like salt. Make a difference in whatever you touch. Make a difference in whatever you touch. Be a godly influence in the lives of the people around you. That's what this is all about. Making a difference. Being an influence, being a godly influence in a fallen, troubled world. And speaking of being an influence, Jesus goes on to say, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except To be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. This is a difficult statement to understand. Because salt, sodium chloride, right? That's what that is. Sodium chloride, which is a very stable chemical element. Does not lose its saltiness. But it can be diluted and contaminated with other minerals to the point that it becomes tasteless. And I think that's what Jesus means. As salt, we are to influence the world around us instead of being influenced by it. That makes sense. We are to influence the world around us instead of being influenced by it. But if we become diluted and contaminated by the Patterns and the principles and the values of this world, we cannot function as God intended. And instead of being pure salt, fit for the table, our influence, that's what he's talking about, our influence becomes nothing more than salt we throw on an icy sidewalk. That make sense? A woman once wrote to the editor of Christianity Today with this story. One afternoon, my four-year-old niece, Paige, and my six-year-old daughter, Ashley, started an argument, which grew louder and louder. I was about to intervene when my daughter stormed downstairs and said, mom, She yelled, Jesus wants us to be the salt of the earth, and Paige is being the pepper. (laughs) You are the salt of the earth. The question is are you being who you are meant to be? That's the question. You are. The salt of the earth. Are you being who you are meant to be? And with that question, we move on to verse 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works." and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In this passage, this time Jesus is using the metaphor of light. Jesus speaks to the people in a way that they would certainly understand. In those days, When people traveled at night, they depended on the glow of the oil lamps in the windows of houses to direct them. And when cities were built on a hill, the glow of these lights could be seen from a very great distance. For those who went out in the Sea of Galilee, which was nearby. Those who were fishing at night. And they went fishing at night. That's when the fishing was good. They could navigate by the moon and the stars. But if the sky was overcast, they could find their way by using the shining lights of the city, like a lighthouse. Men don't light an oil lamp just to put it out instead they put it on a lamp stand to shine everybody knew it was the nature of light to shine that's the nature of light to shine and just as true it is also the nature of those in the kingdom to shine as well. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And I need to clarify that a bit. I don't have this up up there. In John chapter eight, verse 12, I'm just going to read this to you. Jesus said, and you've heard it before. This is from Jesus. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Here, Jesus said that he is the light but he just told the people on the hill they were the light. So how are we to understand this? Well, in putting this all together, Jesus is the light, and those who follow him are reflections and bearers of his light, to make God visible in a very dark world. Think back to the creation story. Okay? Think back to the creation story. On the first day, day one, on the first day, God said, let there be light. Remember that? God said, let there be light, and there was light. So there was light. God just made it. And it's not until we get to the fourth day, the fourth day, that he makes The sun, the moon, and the stars. So there was already light on the first day. It was already present. And the sun and the moon and the stars in heaven were to bear that light. God set it up that way. It functions that way. And likewise, for those in Christ, for those who follow him, we are to be light bearers, reflections of Christ, bearers of spiritual and moral light in a world of darkness. Jesus said in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine by your character and your conduct so that you Draw attention to God rather than to yourself. You are the light of the world. Author Robert Fulgram tells this story of one of his professors, a wise man whose name was. Alexandros Papaderos. Have you heard that name? Alexandros Papaderos. Papaderos was born on the island of Crete. During the Second World War, his hometown was destroyed by the Nazis. And as a child, as a child, he was sent a concentration camp. After the war, Papaderos was determined to be a force of peace and forgiveness. He studied theology in the Orthodox Church, and in 1965, he opened an institute designed to promote peace and reconciliation. He located it in Malim, the site where German paratroopers landed and one of the war's worst atrocities was unleashed. The paratroopers met resistance from islanders bearing nothing other than kitchen knives and hay forks and the consequences of their resistance was devastating. All the residents of the entire village were lined up and shot, all of them. One day, while taking questions at the end of a lecture, Papadaris was asked, what's the meaning of life? There was nervous laughter in the classroom, and as purple as people stirred to leave the room, Papadaris held up his hand and stilled the class. Taking out his wallet out of his hip pocket, he fished into a leather billfold and brought out a very small round mirror about the size of a quarter, and what he said went something like this. When I was a small child during the war, we were very poor, and we lived in a remote village. One day on the road, I found the broken pieces of a mirror. A German motorcycle had been wrecked in that place. I tried to find all the pieces and put them together, but it was not possible. So I kept only the largest piece. This one he shows, and by scratching on on it by uh, scratching it on a stone, I made it round. I began to play with it as a toy and became fascinated by the fact that I could reflect light into dark places where the sun would never shine in deep holes and crevices and dark closets. It became a game for me to get light into the most inaccessible places I could find. I kept the little mirror. And as I went about my growing up, I would take it out in idle moments and continue the challenge of the game. As I became a man, I grew to understand that this was not just a child's game, but a metaphor for what I might do with my life. I came to understand that I am not the light or the source of light, but light truth. Understanding, knowledge is there and it will only shine in many dark places if I reflect it. I am a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and shape I do not know. Nevertheless, with what I have, I can reflect light into the dark places of this world, into the black places in the hearts of men to change some things in some people. Perhaps others may see and do likewise. This is what I am about. This is the meaning of life. Then he took this small mirror and holding it carefully caught the bright rays of daylight streaming through the window and reflected them onto the faces and the hands of those in the class. Jesus said, I am the light of the world and his followers As his followers, we are to be like that little mirror, reflecting the light of Christ into the dark corners of this world. That is the meaning of the Christian life. Jesus did not say, Jesus did not say, become the salt. He did not say, become the light. No, he said, you are the salt. You are the light. That's who you are in Christ. And it implies you are to have an influence. Not so that people will glorify you. And let's be honest, we like that. Let's just be honest, we like that. But in light of what God has done for you, you want him to get the praise and the honor and the glory. Let me ask you a question. How often have you said or heard someone say they have known that person for many, many years and just discovered they are a Christian? You ever heard that? Ever said that? I have worked with that person for many, many years and now I just learned they are a believer. What's wrong with that picture? If we, if we cannot recognize our own brothers and sisters in Christ by their character and their conduct then how in this world can we expect those who are lost in darkness to do so if we can't even recognize ourselves each other our brothers and sisters How can we expect those in dark to see a difference? So in the context of influence, and I think that's the context here, in the context of influence, salt is good for nothing if it's diluted or contaminated. In the context of influence, Light is good for nothing if it's hidden. Therefore, it begs the question Do those who know you know you know Jesus? That's a tough question. Do those who associate with you, do those who work with you, do those who know you know that you know Jesus? Before we can be an influence on others as God intends, we must be under His influence. Seeking His will. And His direction. Following where He leads. And then being where we are supposed to be. So that God can use us. And one more thing. If you are following God's lead. Please understand. That someone is probably following you. Let us pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. We are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. We are called to reflect you, to make God visible in a dark, troubled, fallen world. Help us, Lord, to understand that's who we are in Christ, in Christ. Help us to be who we are and to live like who we are. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I became a a Christian in 1980, September of 1980, and uh, I was a young man. I was in the Coast Guard, uh, in the aviation side of the Coast Guard, working in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. That's where I met. I've been working with this guy named Chuck for a couple of years, and then I became a believer, became a Christian. And about a year after I had become a Christian, <clears throat> I'm not sure, but I, 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 it, it, I was, I was prompted, I guess. Maybe. to go talk to Chuck and I I told Chuck about what had happened to me a year earlier and then I asked him a question I'll remember it it sticks with me Chuck Knowing what you know, what what I just told you, do you see any difference in me? Chuck is lost. Chuck was a lost man. And so I'm asking Chuck, do you see any difference in me? The guy you used to know. To the guy you see now, do you see any difference? No. No. Okay. That was tough to hear. That was tough to hear. And I needed to hear it. I need to hear it. I'm, I was supposed, as a believer, to make a difference, to to be an influence in the lives of people, and I was I was doing none of that. Effect. I need to hear it. Listen, I know. called us to do. He says, guys and gals, you are on the hill. You are salt. Salt makes a difference to everything it touches. You are light. And light makes a difference. It has an influence in the dark. I've been in caves. You've been in caves before, right? You know, and then it's super dark and they'll, they'll just turn out all lights and you can't even see your, your hands in front of you. And just one little match can change the entire cavern. One little match. Just one little match. That's all. That's who we're supposed to be. So be salt. Be light. Because that's who you are. Maybe you're here this morning.